thing with this story, it's always struck me is as much as I love Paley's work in general, you know, it's one of those stories that just sort of transcends even the best of her work. And I, that's probably not fair, but I, 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 when I found my, when we were talking about doing Paley and I, we were thinking about other stories and there's other, you know, interest in life and so many others and, and the late ones, which don't get as much of attention are wonderful. But I, I come back to, I come back to Rose, Aunt Rose. And, uh, and I just think about her, you know, she's like a philosopher as much as she is a storyteller. And, and it's, uh, God, it's, you know, it's like, uh, would this dumb us down? It's like the need for Ted Lasso a little bit. You kind of need Aunt Rose to tell you, like, look, <laughs> like shake you up and say, okay, you know, you only got one go at this, you know, be more like Aunt Rose. Hi, everybody. Peter Orner and I welcome you to this episode of The Lonely Voice. It's a podcast about short stories, and any podcast about short stories must include the work of the great Grace Paley. We've got that for you, and start where she started with Goodbye and Good Luck. It's the opening story in the 1959 collection, The Little Disturbances of Man. It's a story that's been very often anthologized, and we want to shine a light on its ubiquity and try to understand why that is. We surmise it's because it's such an extraordinary story. If you talk about Grace Paley, you have to talk about voice, and we do, but you also have to talk about compassion, kindness. People face conflict and tragedy and deep sorrow and loneliness on any given day, but with that tragedy... We see also the absurdity of life, and a good measure of humor comes through. So, hello, lonely voices out there, and goodbye, and good luck. Oh, and stay with us to the end of this episode for a very special bonus chat on the story Living by Grace Paley. But first, let's get back to talking about goodbye and good luck and being more like Aunt Rose. Aunt Rose is telling us the story as much as she's telling her um, her niece, you know. And it would be such a, I don't know, in moments I feel like what an unpopular idea that would be with some people to be more oh like Oh, my God. Rose. I mean, completely. It wouldn't be popular with most people, don't you think? I mean, <laughs> yeah. You know, like, we'll, we'll get into it, right? I mean, yeah. I, I think this story, you know, everyone's like, oh, I love Grace Paley. Like, great. Well, you know, do you, you know, this this story would is counter to to where we are right now, right? In some ways. Yes and no. Yeah, yes and no. Exactly. Because yes and no. I, I mean, better, I better I not mean, say more. <laughs> maybe uh, I, I, I was thinking we could. I could just talk a little bit about the first paragraph, and then I would love for you to say, like, spell out what you think people would reject. Yes. Yes. But the fir- the, the way it opens. Is you know this famous first line? I was popular in certain circles, says Aunt Rose. I was no thinner then, only more stationary in the flesh. In time to come, Lily, don't be surprised. Change is a fact of God. From this, no one is excused. Only a person like your mama stands on one foot. She don't notice how bigger behind is getting and sings in the canary's ear for thirty years. Who's listening? Papa's in the shop. You and Seymour thinking about yourself. So she waits in the spotless kitchen for a kind word and thinks, 
or rosy. It's this wonderful evocation of like, I know people are talking about me. I know my sister's talking about me. I know what she thinks of me. And she doesn't even think about her own life and how kind of uh, unfortunately miserable and sad it is. And she thinks that I'm the one to be pitied and that therefore then the story launches. And Rose is like, look, you, you might think my life is one thing. Let me tell you, Lily, this is my life. I had this thing and I had this life and it wasn't just Flashkin. And so now tell us what the story's <laughs> about and why would it sort of um, ruffle? Well, can I first go to the second paragraph? Yeah, of course. So poor Rosie. If there was more life in my little sister, she would know my heart is a regular college of feelings. <laughs> <laughs> and there is such information between my corset and me that her whole married life is a kindergarten. <laughs> It's yeah. <laughs> like that uh, that's such a great paragraph too. But and then as if that weren't enough, nowadays you could find me anytime in a hotel uptown or downtown. Who needs an apartment to live like a maid with a dust rag in the hand, sneezing? I'm in very good with the bus boys. It's more interesting than home. All kinds of people, everybody with a reason. And then and my reason, Lily, is a long time ago. And then I said to the forelady, Mrs., if I can't sit by the window, I can't sit. If you can't sit, girly, she says politely, go stand out on the street corner. So that's her first job. <laughs> yeah. so she's like, I want to sit by the window. And the, the boss says, you know what, go stand on the street corner. You're out of here. And that's how I got unemployed in novelty wear. And then she gets a job at the Russian Art Theater of Second Avenue where they played only the best Yiddish plays. They needed a ticket seller, someone like me who likes the public, but who is very sharp on crooks. The man who interviewed me, interviewed me was the manager, a certain type. Immediately, <laughs> he said, Rose Lieber, you surely got a build on you. It takes all kinds, Mrs. Mr. Krimberg. Don't misunderstand me, little girl. He said, I appreciate, I appreciate it. Young lady lacking fore and aft. Her blood is so busy warming the toes and the fingertips. It don't have time to circulate where it's most required. And then she <laughs> says, everybody likes kindness. I said to him, only don't be fresh, Mr. Grimberg, and we'll make a good bargain. And that's her um, entry point into the Russian theater where she's the ticket taker. Yes. Everybody likes kindness. I mean, the thing about her, too, is, you know, people like to talk about voice in Grace Paley's stories. And this is, this is so true of this one. Listening to you read the story... I, I come back to this idea about the voice. So she's telling Lily the story, Lily, her niece, but she's but we get to be Lily and we get to be right there listening. And the, just the voice is so real and quirky and unapologetic and and clear and revealing. Uh, and I know we're not supposed to talk about, uh, you know, um, crafty things and unreliable narrators, but but the the unreliability of the narrator for me is is very gorgeous you know it's it's really something that i fall into because she's so complicated and this is something that i love about short stories and i love about paley is just how simple these characters are how unassuming how unlikely and how true it is that what what is the line 
her heart is a regular college of feelings, and there is such information between my corset and me. It's just like, she's so complicated. It's all right there. It's all right there. And, and I mean, I will say one thing about voice and Paley, and you're, I mean, exactly, you know, people focus on it for good reason. It's, uh, it's extraordinary. And, I mean, I think it's important to point out that the Paley vernacular is her own creation. You know what I mean? It, mm. it, it isn't, you know, we only think people talked this way. Uh-huh. Um, uh, nobody on earth has ever really talked the way that Paley characters <laughs> talk to each other. And this is something I'm, I, I tip my hat to George Saunders, who's got a beautiful essay about Paley, who, who says this very thing that, look, this is, you know, she is creating a kind of voice that is entirely her own, but that we believe is the way that people talk. Bernard Malma did the same thing in his own vernacular. <laughs> and so like the way that um, the timing and the rhythm of Paley's voice is, and when it first came out, it was, it, people were blown away. They couldn't believe this, like, the, the, the energy, the kind of like intensity and wellspring of energy that were coming out of this, out of this voice. And this was the first story in the first book. It, it you know, catapults, catapulted her and people were like, whoa, what is this? Who is talking? And and yes, you know, she's a, a New York Jew from Brooklyn who's who's writing, you know, stories based on her own community and her own life. Yes, of course, but she's also inventing. But I love I love hearing this idea, you know, because it's very easy to fall into those rhythms of that sort of New York Jewish vernacular. But but you're telling me no that maybe that's, that's not a well. Real I mean, thing. it's not that it, it is and it isn't. It, you know, it's a it's it. And I wouldn't say it's a parody. I just think that it's a it's a sort of um, you know it's a it's an amalgamation uh-huh. you know, of something of voices that in my in my view that Paley heard and then they're kind of filtered through the Paley mind, which was so weird. Yeah. And then what comes out is this kind of just this new thing. And you know, here's an example. So so. Um, <laughs> So she ends up going out with, you know, having tea with uh, the great uh, Vlashkin, called by the people of those days, the Valentino of Second Avenue. I took one look and I said to myself, where did a Jewish boy grow up so big? And Vlashkin <laughs> says, just outside Kiev, he told me. <laughs> As we say now, how? Oh, my mama nursed me till I was six. I was the only boy in the village to have such health. My goodness, Flashkin, six years old, she must have had shredded wheat there, not breasts, poor woman. I mean, you know, people, <laughs> and, and I even messed up that sentence. She must have had shredded wheat there, not breasts, poor woman. That That is, uh, you know, in my opinion, is an example of sort of just this, this kind of just this, this incredibly inventive uh, way of talking that Paley channels through what she's heard mm-hmm. and then creates something new. And again, I'm, I am tipping my hat uh, to Saunders who makes this, you know, pretty much the same mm-hmm. case um, saying that, you know, that this was part realism and part just kind of fantastical. It's fantastical realism in the, in the best sense. Uh-huh. I, I like that, um, that Rose is so in tune. Yes. With, voice and with what people say and how they say things. So I'm sort of into this, you know, Krimberg saying to her that Blashkin wants to meet her, impressed, no doubt, by your big brown eyes. 
And then just a few paragraphs down, she says about Vlashkin, he had such a way of expressing himself, it brought tears. And the thing he has said is, my mother was beautiful. She had eyes like stars. You know, (laughs) this this focus on eyes that I really love, but also the way that maybe exactly what you're saying. You know, I I love this bit about... um, uh, let's see. Mr. Vlashkin, I saw you a couple weeks ago, even before I started working here in the Seagull. Believe me, if I was that girl, I wouldn't look even for a minute on the young bourgeois fellow. He could fall out of the play altogether. How Chekhov <laughs> could put him in the same play as you, I can't understand. That's <laughs> one of my favorite lines, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How Chekhov could put him in the same play as you, I can't understand. I mean, again, it's like, you know, it, it's, it, it's the rhythm of the sentence. It's also like what she's saying is basically, you know, that, that, that you know, she has it all backwards, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> Right, and you know, back to Seagull, it's about the young guy, and you know, I was thinking like, who, who? I, I, I meant to go back and look who Flashkin might have played in the <laughs> yeah. Seagull. There must have been a, a competing older, older character who doesn't win the girl in the Seagull, um, who he plays. But in in, in Rosie's mind, is he should have won out. You know? All of the things that are established about her appearance, about how she looks comes by way of what Grimberg is saying and what, you know, so other people are saying, or, but also what she says about herself. And she just seems to be really comfortable in her own skin and just who she is. And that's, that's another interesting quality about her. We learn about how she connects with this guy. <laughs> Let's see, what is she? Oh, when they meet, he does say, young people still like me. From the very beginning, we, we have the sense of how she's not that self-conscious about her appearance, but he's immediately making note of the fact that he's older and she's younger and maybe young people still like him. So I feel like, of course, he you know he's this actor and he has these affairs and there's something that she's managing in this friendship for him and you know, all of this is revealed by way of her telling Lily the story, but it never becomes this kind of thing where she, you know, where Rose is going to change herself for him. She just plods along, drinks her tea, gets her $9 a week or 50 cents a night for being an extra and gets to watch rehearsals. You know, she just, she's just who she is moving through uh, daily life. It's, it's really Vlashkin who, you know, sort of turns her world upside down, but not really because she's she seems so casual about it also. Also, she's right there with him. I mean, she, you know, she, you know, look, Rosie was not going to be a great, a great actor in the, in the Yiddish theater. I mean, she's the ticket taker, but it doesn't mean she's not going to participate in her own life. And I think I, was, I promised myself this morning I wasn't going to make any generalizations about Paley, oh. you know, but, I, but here's one. <laughs> Here's one. I think that Paley appreciates the characters who are the heroes in, in, in Paley's work, to me, are the people who are honest with themselves. She doesn't, the people who take it harder and she gives as good as she gets are the characters who, who, are, who lie to themselves. But I think, I think she likes it when people are like, look, here's who I am. And, you know, I'm this, you think I'm just this fat lady who's alone by herself going from hotel to hotel, who hasn't had a life, Lily. But the fact is, 
I have had a life and it's and it's been a very rich life. And 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 yet she's also not, you know, suggesting, you know, that she was the star. She wasn't. Mm-hmm. You know, but I feel like Paley sort of gravitates. And again, this is like this first story out of the first book. She gravitates towards characters who are like, look, this is who I am. You know, take it or leave it, but I'm not going to lie to you. Yes. And I, I'm not going to lie to myself, I guess is what I'm saying. Yes. And something that I like about that is this idea that it, she can find it so moving that she's just who she is and uh, somebody would still appreciate her. This is what she thinks, right? So where it says that um, the ladies went crazy on the opening night in the middle of the first scene and they're all about Blashkin. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a great, can we just read that real quick? Yes, can they, you read it? Can they, you, read? <laughs> you know, so the, the seagull was a flop, but the salesman from Istanbul was a great success, a play I would like to look up to. Uh, here the ladies went crazy. On the opening night, in the middle of the first scene, one misses, and then, you know, to be crafty, M-dash, a <laughs> widow, or her husband worked too long hours, began to clap and sing out, Oi, Oi, Blashkin! Soon there was such a tumult, the actors had to stop acting. Blashkin stepped forward, et cetera. So, and again, this is like, you know, does someone say, oi, oi, Blashkin? No, it's just like, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a send up, you know? I mean, yes. Did people say oi sometimes? Maybe. You know what I mean? Yes. But, you know, I, I, I think the characters in Paley's world were probably working way too hard to um to say you know oi Blashkin very much. But in this one moment, this one woman can't help herself. And I, I uh, it's a wonderful scene. And also you get a sense of like, you know, a world um, that's completely disappeared, you know, yeah, uh, a, a kind of an alternate world of kind of stardom that, you know, only, you know, kind of was limited to, you know, people who went to Yiddish theater in these days. Yeah. So um, there's another story uh, that where Paley actually says, someone comes to her and says, hey, I want you to tell my life story and it has to do with the Yiddish theater. And and she her replies, I, I, I blew my wad with all I knew about the Yiddish <laughs> theater on one story. I got nothing to give. So, and, you know, there's entire tomes on the Yiddish theater, but mm-hmm. this pretty much distills the excitement of, of that time mm-hmm. because people, um, immigrants had a place to go. They had a place to go that was like their own. You know, and to hear Yiddish on the stage, I mean, how incredible this must that have been. Yeah, I I like that sh- that the character of Rose has an appreciation of it. You know, she sort of falls into it with this job, but she then she says in that same p- paragraph you were just reading, "I cried to think who I was, nothing, and such a man could look at me with interest," and. She says something else much later on, and I probably shouldn't jump so far ahead, but there's this idea that she is able to give to Vlashkin this idea that he's, you know, he does the things that he does, good or bad, as part of his rehearsal, you know, as part of his study of human beings. And she doesn't, I mean, she she doesn't necessarily how do I say this? She remains kind. I mean, I, I don't know how I feel about that word that's given over to, to Rose, that she's kind, but she is. She is. This is why people stick around. You know, this is why this guy sticks around. She is kind. She is 
you know, she is a, a person without guile, it seems like. And that's... Until she sends him packing. I mean, they have this, <laughs> yeah. they have this, they have this affair. Apparently, he's having an affair with every, everybody. Yeah. But, you know, he sets up, uh, he sets up Rosie in an apartment near the near the theater where he can, uh, where he can, you know, go and unwind at her place. Um, you know, when he's not rehearsing. Um, you know, and so again, you know, you started out this conversation. You know, there's stuff about this story that would piss people off, and 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 would have even, you know, at any time, right? That that she's being used. That, yes, that Rosie's just a, a tool for um, for the great Vlashkin to um, you know to retool when he's when he's on in an off moment. Yes, and when she has to tell her mother that she's leaving her house, and she professes her love for him in front of her mother. What does the mother call her? <laughs> I thought you might mention this line at some point. She calls her a, rot, uh, a rotten hole in a piece you, of Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is another one. Like, all this makes no sense. You know, like, I, I would go to my grave saying no one actually said this. Except in, in a Paley story, which makes it real enough. You... You and nothing, a rotten hole in a piece of cheese. Are you telling me what is life? He screamed. Very insulted, I went away from her. But I'm good natured. You know, fat people are like that, kind. And I thought to myself, poor mama. It is true, she got more of an idea of, of life than me. You know, and, and because she married a sick, sick man and was never happy. So in a sense, um, Rosie acknowledges that her, that her um, you know, that her, that her sister, uh, uh, or her mother, actually, in this case, um, had had the actual like life, life, you know, a rough one. Yeah, she hey, hers is more of a little bit more of a party. It's the first. I'm sorry. Oh no, it's the first instance of goodbye and good luck. It's the first time she says it of the three. Is is in describing the father. I mean, we do say she's a very kind person, but she doesn't seem very connected. Or sympathetic to the to the father uh, in describing him and just sort of saying like, "Well, that was my mom's destiny. Goodbye he, and he, good luck to you all." <laughs> he had an unhappy smell. His teeth fell out. His hair disappeared. He got smaller, shriveled up little by little. Till goodbye and good luck, he was gone and only came to Mama's mind when she went to the mailbox under the stairs to get the electric bill. In memory of him and out of respect for mankind. I decided to live for love. Don't laugh. <laughs> <laughs> right. And like, you know, as a reader, I'm not laughing. But Lily is sitting in the kitchen listening to the story. And Lily's sort of, you know, a completely invisible character in here, but she does react and and we know what she's doing by what Rose Rosie says. You know, it's a wonderful, simple structure. Somebody's telling a story to an invisible character. And then when that character does something, the character who's telling the story reacts so we know what that person's doing. But the reason that 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 Lily is laughing is because she knows these people. <laughs> she knew she knew her grandfather. Yeah. You know, she she knew she knew she knew the grandmother. And so, you know, for her to hear this is different than for us as strangers to hear it, I think. So she can laugh at the what what would be pretty sad. He he smelled, his teeth fell out, <laughs> and then he died. You know, yeah, terrible. And then she she says that other men came sort of came after her. Krimberg went after me too, no doubt observing the success of Lashkin. He thought, aha, open sesame. <laughs> Others in the company similar. 
you're right, nobody says this. <laughs> After me in those years were the following. Grimberg, I mentioned. Carl Zimmer, played innocent young fellows with a wig. <laughs> Charlie Peel, a Christian who fell in the suit by accident, a creator of beautiful sets. Color is his middle name, says Blashkin, always to the point. I put this in to show you your fat old aunt was not crazy out of loneliness. In those noisy years, I had friends among interesting people who admired me for reasons of youth and that I was a first-class listener. We read that and we think, uh-huh, <laughs> that's not why, but okay. <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, listening can be very seductive. I was thinking about that this morning. I thought, yeah, that's pretty good. Um, youth, yeah, check, good. <laughs> first-class listener, right? Things that men like, sure. Or that sounds cynical. Sorry, I should take that out. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's, uh, I mean, again, I think Paley, you know, Paley appreciate this. You know, there's a certain kind of, this story, I mean, the, you, you remind me of your Uncle Gerstein, who comes a little later. She says, <laughs> another fellow, your Uncle Gerstein, a regular sport, dressed to kill, with such an excitable nature. In those days, it looks to me like yesterday, the youngest girls were unbearable. <laughs> As <laughs> the bell tolls behind me <laughs> on campus, in these in those days, it looks to me like yesterday. The youngest girls wore undergarments like Battle Creek, Michigan. Now that is just like, first of all, it's a line of genius. They wore undergarments like Battle Creek, Michigan. I mean, how I could talk about this for hours. How great that is! And also, having been to Battle Creek, I kind of get it. To him, it was a matter of seconds. <laughs> Where did he get such practice, a Jewish boy? Nowadays, I suppose it's easier. Lily, my goodness, I ain't asking nothing. Touchy, touchy. So Lily's like recoiling at the suggestion, which is total. I mean, you know, this is, you know, Paley is not afraid of being racy. And this is, a, again, this really early story. And she's like, you know, they, the youngest girls wore undergarments like Battle Creek, Michigan. And then the next sentence is to him, it was a matter of seconds. Where do you get such practice that you wish, boy? So she, the compression and this sort of like life right there. Yeah. We know what your Uncle Gerstein is up to. <laughs> and she's not really judging it. She's uh, mm -hmm. applauding it, which again, is more honest than, than judging. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. Yes, I love it. But we skipped over the part where she meets Vlashkin's wife. Ah, uh, yes. The second instance of goodbye and good luck. She well, tell says, us about that. So she, okay, when she meets her, uh, let's see. Uh, okay, let's see. Um, she sat at a small table speaking in a deep voice to whoever stopped a moment to converse. Her Yiddish was perfect, each word cut like a special jewel. I looked at her. She noticed me like she noticed everybody, cold, like Christmas morning. Then yeah. she got tired. I love that line. Then she got tired. Vlashkin called a taxi, and I never saw her again. Poor woman, she did not know I was on the same stage with her. The poison I was to her role, she did not know. And then that's when she decides, I'm no homebreaker. And um, she's, she leaves, she's going to break up with Vlashkin. No, goodbye and good luck. No, goodbye, good luck, I said. I am sincere. And that's it. Yeah, she was. And so years and years go by. Yes. I find it interesting that she says, after this few days, I came back to my life. When we met, me and Vlashkin, we said only hello and goodbye. And then for a few sad years, with the head, we nodded as if to say, 
Yes, yes, I know who you are. That's very, that's a very interesting part of the story for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a, I mean, you know, there's a, a, a melancholy and a sadness that weighs down this story that I think is what is its greatest strength in a way. You know, it's a happy story. It ends happy. It's got a happy ending. Yeah. Um, but meanwhile, people are dropping like flies. They're dying. No. They're getting old. Things are, you know, and 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 when they do reunite, there's this wonderful sense of of expectation and giddiness as they go back to her apartment. This is years and years later. Mm-hmm. And yet, um, Paley says, you know, they do it slower. They're going slower. You know, they're not so. They're not running to the apartment. They're <laughs> heading there. But they're not running, and it just it's really struck me. But I, <laughs> it also, you know, it, it it it's important to note that you know that in this story, when Rose is fifty, it's like oh, life is all over, you know. Yes. Uh, and well, although Vlashkin's still going strong, and I guess we're <laughs> supposed to kind of think that I mean Vlashkin at the end of the story is what in his seventies, eighties, right? Yes. Uh huh. It's it is funny when she first breaks it off, and she goes and stays with her mother for a week's vacation and cleaned up all the closets and scrubbed the walls till the paint came off. She was grateful, all the same her hard life made her say, now we see the end. If you live like a bum, you are finally a lunatic. So, And then in the interim, we also learn um, that one of the other actresses from the company also publishes a book. Oh, by the way, Vlashkin publishes a book, but so does this other person and reveals that she had a, a long affair with him, that they were lovers. But the difference is that this person did it without respect for him, his wife and children, or even others who also may have feelings in the matter, meaning Rose. <laughs> even as she comes to learn this about him, it doesn't alter anything. I mean, she's she's going to respond to his uh, advances again. And then this gets into like, you know, like it's 2023 and, and we're supposed to judge the actress who wrote the tell-all memoir that didn't care about the wife and the kids. And Rosie's judging the other, uh, the other woman for publishing the tell-all memoir, which is, of course, her right to do, you know. And yet Rosie still kind of carries the torch for Vlashkin. Yes, you know? And protects him and protects <laughs> his wife and kids. She says, now, Lily, don't be surprised. This is called a fact of life. <laughs> so right. she's making an, an excuse there, but maybe she really believes it. She says, I think she does believe it. Yeah. A great artist like Volodya Vlashkin, in order to make a job on the stage, he's got to practice. I understand it now. To him, life is like a rehearsal. Myself, when I saw him and the father-in-law, an older man in love with a darling young girl, his son's wife, <laughs> played by Risley Meisel, I cried. What he said to this girl, how he whispered such sweetness, how all his hot feelings were on his face. Lily, all this experience he had with me, the very words were the same. You can imagine how proud I was. <laughs> now, at this point, I'm not sure I, I buy it all, but I know she does. I think that's the key, yeah. right? Is we don't have to buy it, yeah. But 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 I think we got to honor Rose and what she's saying, and I think that's what Paley's doing here, and I think that's why the story the story endures, and I think that's why the story, even though we you know we know that Paley, you know, from this point in her life evolves in ways that are you know f- far different, but probably even was then, 
wasn't kind of a rosy type figure herself. I mean, you know, Paley was, a, you know, radical in so many ways, politically and as a feminist and as as a, as an anti-war activist. And she wasn't somebody who was going to sit around and and think that, you know, men could do what they wanted, you know. Yeah. But Rosie, Rosie's different. And she honors Rosie without That's judging right. her. And I end up loving her every single time, even though I'm like, hey, Rosie, you got your own thing going. You don't need Flashkin. But, you know, she loves Flashkin. What can I do about it? She loves him. She says she says that she notices how his face has changed. She compares his face to her mother's face, right? Old, old, old. But it troubled my heart most to see these realities scratched on Flashkin's wonderful expression She's st- he's older, he looks older. All these things have happened in the interim and she loves him. Right. And she she told Lily she that the, that it was about love for her. Um so she says um oh they have that dinner for him to sell to honor him and his retirement. Um Goodbye, dear friend, topic of my life, now we part. I love that line. And to myself, I said further, finished. This is your lonesome bed. A lady what they call fat and 50. You made it personally. From this lonesome bed, you will finally fall to a bed not so lonesome, only crowded with a million bones. And now comes Lily Guess. And then we find out. You know, I, I want to amend something I said earlier. It's not that people don't talk this way. It's that I think Paley channels the way that people talk. Like we all talk differently depending on who we're talking to. Uh-huh. And I think that that's what Paley captures is like this kind of theatrical kind of over the top, almost ridiculous at times way of addressing is the way that that Flashkin and, Ro- and, and Rosie talk. It's the way that Rosie, when she's getting geared up and she's deep in the story because Lily's listening or not listening or recoiling or whatever Lily's doing, depending on what moment in the story. But this is the way that 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 Rosie talks, depending on who she's talking to. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, you know, she she was not an actress, but in a way, you know, she she learned a lot from 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 watching those plays yeah. and learned a lot from Blashkin, this sort of over the top way of talking. You know, kind of seems to me that she that she was a better, um, you know, uh, actress than she even knew, even though she was only an extra in a couple plays. Yeah. When he comes back and she's right in that moment, which as she's telling Lily, I get a buzz on the phone. She's washing her underwear in the basin. Excuse me. Is this the Rose Lieber formally connected with the Russian art theater? It is. (laughs) Well, well, how do you do, Rose? This is Blushkin. You know, it's like they don't pick up where they left off. I, I wouldn't say that, but it it just seems like such um I mean, she really wasn't expecting it. Uh, listen, Blashkin, tell me the truth. What's on your mind? My mind? Rosie, I am looking up an old friend, an old, warm-hearted companion of more joyful days. My circumstances, by the way, are changed. I'm retired, as you know. Also, I am a free man. What? What do you mean? <laughs> No, they're getting so Mrs. Blashkin is divorcing him because he's finally at home all the time. Right. And she can't stand him. 
which is just hilarious. Kind of <laughs> almost an easy joke, but like Bailey, <laughs> it sort of works. He's like, I'm underfoot all the time, and now and now she has 50 years of evidence against me that she can now use against me to kick me out of the house because I'm home all the time. It's it's you know it couldn't be more wonderful. This is like you know to me this story is like you know it's like. It's like love in the time of cholera in seven pages. You know what I mean? And, and you know they do. There's this beautiful reuniting. You know, and I mean we've totally messed the story for anyone who hasn't read it. So <laughs> everybody should stop the tape now. But you know it is it is a, it, it you know it's it's an outlier in 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 a, in in great stories by Paley and by others of this period. It, you know, it's one that doesn't end with melancholy and death, and it it ends with them going off to like the hotels and spending the rest of the money and uh and bye lily because you're gonna have a similar life to your mom actually yes you know and uh so good luck with that it's a glorious sort of uh wonderful happy ending you know he he says it to her like like their friends guess what my wife etc and she says, such a foolish end, Valadia, to such a lively story. What is your plans? First, <laughs> What is I... your plan? Can, that just, can we pause right there? What is your plan? What is your plan? So simple. I love like it. That line. I love it. What is your plans? I love that. First, could I ask you for dinner in the theater? Uptown, of course. After this, we are old friends. I have money to burn, what your heart desires. Others are like grass. The north wind of time has cut out their heart. Of you, Rosie, I recreate only kindness. What a woman should be to a man, you were to me. Who knows if it's true, but <laughs> it sure sounds good right now. And I don't know. It, it's He's just at a stage in his life where the, he's without his wife, will be. And Rosie was always kind, a good listener. My answer, Lily, in a minute was altogether, yes, yes, come up. Ask the room by the switchboard, let us talk. <laughs> so again, you started out this by saying like a lot of people would not think that this was a message that they wanted to get behind, you know. Yes. Um, so, yes and no. Uh, you know, yes wait, wait no. for the man. Wait, wait 40 years and you'll get married. <laughs> My goodness, I am already late. Very late. I mean, she never married. She never, there was never anyone else in the picture. Well, except for the, uh, what's his name? Uh, Yonid. Oh, Whatever. Yeah. Yonkel Gerstein. That's right. But I suspect, I mean, not to get to, you know, like it's such a romantic notion because it's not, but, you know, she... Wasn't that she was waiting for Vlashkin either? I mean, I think no. she just really loves the guy. Can we just give that to Rosie? Yeah, I think you know. Yeah, I think we can, and and uh, you know, um, we don't have to love Vlashkin. So she sends, you know, Lily on that errand. Hug Mama, tell her from Aunt Rose goodbye and good luck. Grace Paley's goodbye and good luck. What a story! But before you go. Here's a short mini bonus episode about living another story by the inimitable Grace Paley. To say about living is like it's a three page story about a friend who's dying and it starts out two weeks before Christmas. Ellen called me and said, Faith, I'm dying. And this is Faith, a recurring character in Paley. 
Faith, I'm dying. That week I was dying too. And so she's having health problems also. After we talked, I felt worse. I left the kids alone, ran down to the corner for a quick sip among living creatures. But Julie's and the other bars were full of men and women gulping a hot whiskey before hustling off to make love. People require strengthening before the acts of life. I drank a little California Mountain Red at home and thought, why not? Wherever you turn, someone is shouting, give me liberty or give me death. Perfectly sensible, thing-owning, church-fearing neighbors flop their hands over their ears at the sound of a siren to keep fallout from taking hold of their eternal, internal organs. You have to be cockeyed to love and blind in order to look out the window at your own ice-cold street. So, I mean, there's a way in Paley in this story, I think is one of the greatest examples where she just, you just descend into um, someone's thinking on any given moment, on any given day. Um, kind of reminds me a little bit of like Bernadette Mayer in the sense of just like, you gotta, you gotta just go along with her. And so, you know, a person gets a phone call, the friend's dying and then you know, she runs out to the bar to try and drink away that sorrow, but she can't because there's no room because everyone else is drinking to go <laughs> have sex. And so she's like, there's something about the story that kind of, uh, it's like the weight of constant change, you know? And I don't know about you. I've, I've gotten like so many friends with like health scares lately, you know? It's like getting a little crazy, you know? Like it, you reach a certain point. And I feel like this is that moment in, in Paley where she gets this call from her friend, Ellen. And then the story, uh, which isn't much of a story, except it's a glorious story because they end up having a conversation. Life isn't that great, Ellen. I said, so this is how she comforts the friend who tells her that she's dying. Oh, life isn't that great, Ellen, I said. And this like, goes in, I mean, like Welty, but like Welty, we get the wrong idea of Paley. <laughs> you know, we, people think, oh, Welty is this nice little old lady sitting in her house in Jackson, like knitting and then occasionally writing a great story. <laughs> Paley was this full of simmering, like rage, you know, in a very artistic way, like Welty. Mm -hmm. These were not people who weren't angry, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, they were not, they were angry at the way that they saw the world was going. But they had enough honor to their characters that they didn't let that anger subsume the characters, I think. Life isn't that great, I said. We've had nothing but crummy days and crummy guys and no money and broke all the time and cockroaches and nothing you do on Sunday but take the kids to Central Park and row on that lousy lake. What's so great, Ellen? What's the big loss? Live a couple more years. See the girls, um, see the kids and the whole cruddy thing. Every cheese hole, and we're back to the cheese hole. <laughs> see the kids and the whole cruddy thing. Every cheese hole in the world go up in heat, blast, fire waves. I want to see it all, Ellen said. I felt a great gob making its dizzy exit. I can't talk, I said. I think I'm fading, fainting. And because she's bleeding. Um, yeah. The character, the narrator here. Uh, also quite sick. Anyway, this is a dark piece of work, um, you know, and it's Ellen ends up passing away. But I often long to talk to Ellen, with whom, after all, I had done a million things in those scary private years. We drove the kids up every damn rock in Central Park. On Easter Sunday, we pasted white doves on blue posters 
and prayed on 8th Street for peace. Then we were tired and screamed at the kids. The boys were babies. For a joke, we stapled their snowsuits to our skirts. And in a rage of slavery, every Saturday for weeks, we marched across the bridges that connect Manhattan to the world. We shared apartments, jobs, and stuck-up studs. And then, two weeks before last Christmas, we were dying. Maybe it's a story that needs no comment. <laughs> the title "Living" also is like it's we are we are dying. We are dying. This is and as much as we say that. I'm not sure we ever believe it, right? Yes. This is the nighttime anxiety of I think like women my age is is oh my gosh I'm dying I hope I wake up in the morning. It's terrible. I mean, it's all consuming. Well, because it's just like, I think it really does capture what this story is about. Yeah. Like what you just said. Yeah. In a a fictional form, this is what that story is. And who does that? Who who can do, who who will sit and listen to me, except you right now, I'm sorry, (laughs) talk about my nighttime anxiety? How can I, how would I ever put that in the story? But she did. I mean, that's, that is, this is something, you know, and it's so uh, ambiguous. What is this bleeding about? Because she does say, um, let's see, I was in such first class shape by New Year's, I nearly got knocked up again. The, the stuff about kids, you know, the sort of the casual references to their kids, I also feel is important because these are not very old women. Their, no. their women may be in in their in the prime of life, but um, oh, so many layers. I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't want to say too much. You know, but I think Paley's like also not like you know like there's so much kind of I don't know like parents now. You know, I, this is a cheap shot. It's just like this this you know the way she kind of ignores the kids. I just love you know <laughs> it just reminds me of so much of you know, growing up in the. 70s and 80s when we kind of were able to grow up without our parents watching everything we were doing yeah god and i'm the one of those people now i've become a monster (laughs) i did too it's just like she these characters these these kids they're barely in the page (laughs) except Um, to be stapled to the skirt that's such a great thing i'll say about paley is that i think she makes it look so easy. You, you have no idea how hard it is. Yeah. You, know? um, you just you just don't, you know. And um, can you say more? Well, I just think that that her great. I mean, you know, she can be um, obtuse at times, and like you said, we don't know exactly what's going on with the narrator and in, in living. But it's like there's such a, there's such a welcomingness to her work that kind of, you know, kind of like allows anybody to and she just she wants everybody in you know and uh like aunt rose you know (laughs) trying to get her arms around everybody and i think that that um it's so so difficult to do um to 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 be such a welcoming presence on the page um without sort of sacrificing the greatness of the work I, i don't know what i'm saying exactly you know there's a certain because you say accessible and it mean, imme- immediately it's horrible sounding, you know? 
Yeah. Um, but it, you know, Paley is a, is this, is this voice that sort of, you know, kind of invites, um, uh, you know, from enormous changes at the last minute, a young man said he wanted to go to bed with Alexandra because she had an interesting mind. He was a cab driver and she had admired the curly back of his head. <laughs> you know, like, you know, who's not going to want to read that? You know, you don't look so middle-aged to me. I mean, everyone likes what they like. <laughs> anyway, so, um, but it goes back to what I was trying to say earlier is that I think that she really um, celebrated people being honest. And I think readers appreciate that too, because there's so lack of it, you know. Yeah. Everywhere we look, including on the page, there's so much dishonesty and fiction. I like the idea of of sort of trying to qualify accessible because that's a word for me that has lost all its meaning, or it's yeah. it has too much meaning now. Yeah. But I I know I think I know what you mean. I mean the opening lines of "Living," two weeks before Christmas, Ellen called me and said, "Faith, I'm dying." That week I was dying too. I mean, the the narrator's always so open. Right. Um, Faith in a tree starts. Just when I most needed important conversation, a sniff of the man-wide world, that is, at least one brainy companion who could translate my friendly language into his tongue of undying carnal love, I was forced to lounge in our neighborhood park surrounded by children. And I'm all in, even though the sentence is long. Right. Some boys are very tough. They're afraid of nothing. You know, these are her opening lines of her stories. Right. It's all, There's always this sort of, I mean, if you looked at all the opening lines, there's always sort of a, an opening for you. Yes. You know, even, but she does move quickly. And the compression is so radical at times that yes. if you don't, if you're not sort of, you know, I, I, I think that it, here's how I'll qualify accessibility and Paley. If you're not paying attention, like, you're not going to, you're not going to engage with the story. So it, it, it welcoming accessible. Yes. But you've got it. Like you will not get the, the leaps that she makes with the transitionless leaps that she makes in her radical compression. If you're not on your game. And so, you know, it's a two way, it's a two way thing. And it gets, as she, as she develops, the style becomes even more radical, you know, in some ways, the, the, the stories are, are less welcoming as she moves along because of the compression gets more intense and, uh, and they're, they're harder, I think. Yeah. Good but you know, we started off with the, with arguably her best and the, and the first you know thing that kind of catapulted her. And you, you know, when people started reading this first story in this first book, um, you know, it, everybody knew that read this as wow, we're, we're in the presence of somebody. When the little disturbances of man came out, which I forget what year in the fifties, um, it had, a, I think, a pretty, a pretty immediate effect. Okay, story fans, thanks for joining Peter Orner and me in our discussion of two stories by Grace Paley. Goodbye and good luck and living. The Lonely Voice theme music was composed by Jacob Rosati. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. Peter Orner is the author of several books, including the essay collection Still No Word From You and the story collection Maggie Brown and Others. He holds the professorship in English and Creative Writing at Dartmouth College, where he's also the director of Creative Writing. 
And I'm Yvette Benavides. If you have a story idea or a comment for us, just write to me at yvette at tpr.org. Subscribe to The Lonely Voice from TPR. Tell all your story-loving friends about us. We're always talking about stories, and we hope you'll listen. Join us again, and thanks.